Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein and Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein and Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of Einstein and Gogo for 2020. I'm Dr. Shane. A big thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for their first show of the year. We have an hour of science for you now, and in the studio, as a special surprise, Dr. Ailey has turned up. Welcome. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Welcome back. Dr. Shane, I should say. Dr. Shane O-A-M. Oh, God. (laughs) I've said it. I've done it. uh, Dr. Ray's in the house and Dr. Lynn's in the house. Now you guys can take over. Do do we bow or is there a ring to kiss? Are you all kneeling? We're all kneeling right now. Well, I think Americans should bow by default. (laughs) Yeah, well, I I was, you know, not being raised with this. I don't know the royalty (laughs) thing. So so how close are you to the throne now? Yeah. Um, Uh, (laughs) Our science communication overlord. I think think (laughs) Britain has to die first before okay. I get to the throne. So uh, I did want to read the actual posting from the Australia Day Honours says, Dr. Shane Thomas Huntington, for us, for service to science as a communicator, he was awarded an OAM. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations, so, Dr. Shane, OAM. Absolutely. Huge, huge, huge. Well, so, we can't say his name now without saying OAM. No, they're the rules. Uh, but but there, are, there are his achievements. I'm not reading it out of CV, but things that some listeners would know, but some wouldn't, and some of us might know because I don't know if we're old enough. Dr. Shane has been on Einstein and Gogo since 1993. I was finishing high school then. Um... <laughs> And he is also co-founder of Telescopes in Schools program since 2011. And we've talked about that on the show a couple times as well. Yeah, that's a fun one. So and there were, you know, he was successful in the things he's done, yeah. which we're not going to do now. We've, no, but, um, but this is the reason why the OAM is now on the end of your name. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> because your efforts have improved science communication across Melbourne, across Australia. Yeah. You've inspired generations, I would say, yeah. of scientists and science communicators yeah. to share their work and you've allowed people to tell their stories and you've interviewed some amazing scientists across the globe and you've given up most Sundays for, the last for a very long <laughs> for a very time. Long time. 20 years. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it's weird actually when you have a Sunday off, like last weekend, I still feel as I'm forgetting to do something, which <laughs> I don't seem to get away with. Although I will say after a few weeks off, you forget that you're forgetting to do something real quick yep. and you just start enjoying your Sundays. But uh, look, it's it's great to get this award. I think it's really good also to um, indicate that Triple R has supported science on radio for such a long period of time. And I can't think of many stations that do that, if any. And that to me is, you know, the ABC obviously and a few others, but that's something that's really important, especially today. And the fact that they're so support the triple r staff are so supportive of this show it's crazy sometimes how much help and you know that they give us so that matters so anyway happy to do it well thank you because it's 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 been a pleasure being along for the ride i think from all of us so very um, well deserved exactly congratulations people would agree with that out there yeah i got i got a a crazy number of nice messages we've got Um, him blushing Well, the first, the first message I got was at 12.01 that morning. A friend of wow. mine wanted to be first, so she texted me. <laughs> like, hey, I'm trying to sleep here. Anyway, um, so are we done on that? No. Well, I think we'll, we'll come back to it throughout. This is the but, closest uh, I've ever been to the Queen. So oh what, what happens? Do you get to go to Canberra and wear a crown or a cape of some description? I was hoping just to go to the government house here in Melbourne. Oh. 
No, there, there is a there is a ceremony in sometime in May or something or other, and they do they like touch your shoulders with some sword or something? Like I'm I'm thinking this is like a knighthood. Now. I, I I think it's just a big stick here in oh, Australia. Okay. They just whack you a big stick. No, it's nothing like that. I, <laughs> I don't think. But um, disappointing. There better be some good food. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Is this ceremony at government house or is it a, a, a local place to where you live? No, it'll be at government house. Okay. Yeah. So that's a nice place to go. It's good parking. Yeah. It's very hard to park in that area of Melbourne. Except at government house. Yes, it's beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah very it nice. Beautiful. So, yep, yeah, that's it. So You, you know, know to dress right? up, right? Because it's, it's oh, really? a good form. Yeah. yeah. Oh, Just no, because sh- it's no board radio doesn't mean you can dress <laughs> in your radio dress. <laughs> well, if I don't dress up, then people, oh, that's the radio guy. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah we understand. Yeah, look, he looks like a bum. Um, anyway. Yes, but it, no, it's great. It's really nice. And I've had the most enormous number of beautiful messages sent to me, um, especially about the show and how much people like the show and Triple R, which is great. So I'm very happy about that. Awesome. And uh, there are one or two people who um, will be getting a very large box of very expensive chocolates or something from <laughs> me for putting me into this award at some stage. But uh, yeah, it was nice. Yep. So um, trying to hide now a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's give people some science though, because uh, it has been a massive summer, so much going on. Dr. Ailey, do you want to start? A big summer, big, big, big summer. But I'm going to start with something that's actually really, really recent. And this is huge from the news of um, Antarctic science, of Mm -hmm. Antarctic climate science. This is about uh, a glacier called the Thwaites Glacier. So the Thwaites Glacier is in an area of West Antarctica. So it's kind of hard to tell West and East Antarctica because it's like... At the South Pole, so yeah, like, yeah. Where, where is what? Um, but basically, if you think about that little kind of, um, I always like to think of Antarctica as a brain. Yeah, there's with kind the, of the, the, the bulbous, yeah, and then yep. there's the brain stem kind yep. of going up towards South America, right? Yep. Um, so the Thwaites Glacier is kind of on uh, the bit between the brain stem and the main bulby bit. So okay. it's like um, West Antarctica. So basically, if you went to kind of the west coast of the US and went straight south. Wait, okay. does that make it its Mandula Oblongata? <laughs> yeah, well, maybe. <laughs> Exactly. But um, so it's a big glacier. It's probably a little bit smaller than the size of the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's pretty big. It extends hundreds of kilometres inland. And it's kind of considered to be uh, one of the, um, the the most important glaciers in West Antarctica. And we know it's melting. We know it's melting really rapidly um, just due to climate change. And it's, it's warming a lot in West Antarctica compared to East Antarctica. Um, but there's been this big project going on, uh, co-collaboration between people in the US and the UK for the past couple of years. And they're really trying to find out more about this. And this really interesting finding came out in the last couple of days because Basically, scientists have been um, hypothesizing for a long time that Thwaites Glacier is melting so fast, not only because it's melting from above, but because it's melting from below as well. Mm. So there's a lot of basically the way that glaciers work is that you've got the bit of ice that's on land and they kind of move really, really slowly and discharge into the ocean. Um, And you've got this thing called the grounding line, which is the point at which the glacier kind of hits uh, its... It's grounded to the the ground. (laughs) It's the grounding line. But you can get water coming up from underneath as well. So they've been hypothesizing that there's this really warm, called Antarctic bottom water, great name, Um, for once in science it actually says what it is, water at the bottom. (laughs) Water at the bottom, yep, yep. Uh, And they've hypothesized it's quite warm and it's melting it from below. And and that does two things. So one, it melts it. Right. But the other thing it does is kind of lubricates it. Yeah, I was wondering about that. So if you think about, you know, if you spill water on the floor, on a tile floor, it gets really slippery. Right. So basically um, the way that the scientists themselves uh, gave an analogy for this was think of it like a pancake. Right. 
So if you've got a gloopy pancake liquid, you put it in a pan and it kind of deforms, the top of it kind of deforms and moves out over the, the bottom of the pancake. But then imagine you put oil in the pan, right. the whole pancake slips, Yeah. right? So that's how we have to think about this. So what they've done for the first time is they've got these grand, brand new fancy little robots called ice fins. They're really cool. They're these tiny little robots that are about, you know, a metre or two long. And they've been sticking them in the ocean around the Thwaites Glacier and they've been zooming about for an hour or two at a time, measuring things like how salty the water is, how warm the water is, all that kind of stuff. But for the first time, they actually drilled down through the glacier around, I think it was about 600 metres or so, down to the grounding line. So this is the point at which the glacier kind of hits the land, okay, because you've got a tongue coming Mm. out into the ocean. And they sent one of these probes down underneath the glacier to this grounding zone and measured the temperature of the water because their hypothesis was, well, we think it's really warm and we think it's melting. And unfortunately, their hypothesis was proved to be correct and unfortunately it was actually warmer than they thought. So the water there is... I think they said about two degrees above melting point. Well, that's a fair amount. Which is a fair yeah, amount. Yeah. yeah. So I think, it's... I think people don't don't think because you know we, we have this mindset of you know well twenty three degrees versus twenty five degrees I can't tell the difference. No, that's right. But For when ice, you're, when you're on the border of melting, yeah, exactly, you know, it makes a big difference. Makes a massive yeah. difference. So the fact that this this water underneath the glacier is two degrees above melting point. Is mm. kind of not cool. And so the next thing that they're going to investigate is apparently this really fresh layer of water from the ice itself tends to form over, uh, well, sorry, under, I should say, the, the, the glacier, the bottom of the glacier. And it kind of almost traps the warmer water. You know, we're only talking a degree or two here. It kind of acts like a little tiny bit of a lid to stop mm. that warm water getting in and hitting the glacier from below. They're actually wondering whether that's been eroded. Um, because the warm water is just so warm coming in from the bottom. So they're going to look at that next. But they've got, yeah, cool thing is these fancy instruments can now do that, and there's Mm. so much more about this glacier that we can tell. Bad news is it's melting faster than we thought. And the problem with that is particularly if it melts this tongue at the front, that kind of acts like a dam for the rest of the glacier. Right, yeah, it stops it sliding. That's right. So then we get this pancake analogy where if it starts sliding... The whole thing goes. Yeah, and yeah. If, if the whole thing goes, I think they said it's about half a metre of sea wow. level rise globally. That's how big this glacier is. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, yeah. it's not going to happen overnight, but they're talking, you know... Decades. If, well, no, hundreds of years. No, it? no, it's more like 200 years. Okay. But that's that's minimum. That's not, you know, 200 yeah. to something, you know, 200 500 years or something, which in the grand scheme of things for, for glacial timescales is actually yeah, really it's quick. It's a blink yeah. of an eye. Um, but it's still not cool at all. So yeah. It's not cool. Anyway, so <laughs> it's not cool. Some some depressing yeah. news to start the year, but cool well, little robots to tell us that, which is is nice. Ice fins. Yes, ice fins. That's Thank you, Doctor Haley. Doctor Lennon. Glaciology is so cool. It I reckon. Is. I mean, awesome. sorry about the pun, but you get to you have to know so many things. Yes. You have to understand how water works, how ice behaves, how air behaves, what happens to the wind, the geology. You have to be across so many different yep. fields, which is really interesting. Mm. I tried really hard to not start the year with some depressing <laughs> science. Most of us have had a pretty depressing summer, mm. which maybe we'll talk about in a bit. And also, you know, the scary things happening around the world uh, a lot at the moment. But I came across a story this week, again, quite recent. Uh, and if you want to forget about the brain at the bottom of Antarctica, at the bottom of the world, we're going up to the top of the world now, about a new form of the Northern Lights. 
that has been discovered in the last week or so. Oh, really? Yeah. And I love this story because it was discovered by uh, enthusiasts, oh, by citizen cool. scientists. Cool. So the story goes that this, uh, this scientist from the University of Helsinki, Minna Palmroth, she gave a talk to a group of Aurora enthusiasts a few years ago and she sort of talked them through the different types of northern lights that you can get and she realised that they didn't have a kind of guidebook so she wrote a bit of a field spotter's guide for them about the different kinds of lights that you can see, you know, because mm. auroras can take different forms, they can be different colours and there are different reasons for all of those. Uh, and then after a few years, somebody contacted her, I think it was in October 2018, and said, oh, hey, you're missing, you're missing one from the book. <laughs> That's great. And she was like, what? No, what are you talking about? No, no, we've seen this, this other kind of pattern. It's not in the book. What is it? And so she said, oh, oh, I don't know. Can you go and take a photo of it for me? And so she did. She was kind of sitting on her couch telling these enthusiasts because they were out taking these beautiful photos of the Northern Lights up in Finland. And they took a photo or they took several photos that would help her and her scientific team understand how this new form of northern lights occurs. So if you think of most northern lights and southern lights, uh, they kind of look like uh, curtains falling. They're mm. sort of vertical yeah, as yeah. you get this, these electrons sort of coming in from the sun, getting sucked in the magnetic field, crashing into different particles in high up in the atmosphere and the different types of particles that they hit determines the colour and it kind of... It's got that sort of interaction. Shane's yeah. looking at me like, that's, yeah, no, that's you, kind you, of, you're, you're quite, you're that's kind of how yeah, it's works. Good. Looks amazing. It looks amazing. Yeah. So they normally fall like that. They look vertical, but these, this new form, it's called the dunes. Ooh. That's what they've named it, the dunes, because it sort of looks horizontal, right? right? Sort of like, so like sand dunes. Is yes, that, exactly, yeah. like sand dunes, or like fingerprints stretching, or finger fingers stretching out across the horizon. And they're green, so that may that help the scientists understand that I think it's oxygen that the particles are interacted that, that the particles are crashing into, and it's a bit lower in the atmosphere. So this is occurring from about eighty to hundred kilometers above the surface of the Earth mm. in what's called the mesosphere. This is a part of the atmosphere that we don't know that too much about. It's too high for planes and balloons, but it's too low for air for spacecraft and satellites to study. Yeah, wow. So we don't know that much about it. And what these scientists think is that this wavy pattern, this sand dune pattern, is actually the first visualisation that we've seen of atmospheric waves, sort of energy waves that are happening in the mesosphere. They're called mesospheric bores, mm. Mm. these energy waves that are happening. And they also think that maybe it's the interaction between the energy that's coming in from these magnetic fields, like the particle crashing and changing the temperature and sort of messing up the... It's very, very, very thin atmosphere up there, right? Yeah. But the interaction is actually setting off the waves and then the waves can be caught if the conditions are just right by this aurora being, wow. being uh, occurring. Because they do happen. Atmospheric yeah, yeah, waves yeah. happen everywhere. everywhere. But this is the first time that you can kind of visualise it. Yeah. So what I was going to say is in the lower atmosphere, we see these in clouds all the time, mm. right? So we, we call them gravity waves, not to be confused with the physics gravity waves. <laughs> but, you know, they're kind of yeah. like vertical streaks of clouds. Yeah. Yeah. So is it kind of the same thing just with... Particles. Yeah, they think so. They That's think cool. so. And and having this, being able to, hypo well, hypothesizing that, oh, it could be the interaction with the ionosphere and the, the particles crashing mm. into each other, setting off the wave pattern might help us understand more about how what's happening out in space kind of trickles down into what's happening higher in our atmosphere, which can then trickle down to what's happening lower in our atmosphere. Yeah. 
Uh, it's great. And the paper was, was published and half the authors are citizen scientists. That's so, nice. Which is really great. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's just a, a really a nice study. I, I think one of my, my favourite all-time um, little segments we had once was when I interviewed a guy named Terry Burtz, who was one of the astronauts on the International Space Station, and hearing his description of the aurora from above was quite fascinating. He actually oh. said it was like an episode of the X Files. It was so eerie. It was just, it was just extraordinary. He, he gave a really great description of what it looked like from space, which was, which was very different to the way we describe it from Earth, because the, you know, the intensity in that's very different up there. Yeah, so, yeah. I can only oh. imagine. Da- Doctor London, um, you said this was an observation in Finland. Mm-hmm. The Finns have been looking up at the sky for a long time. They have six months of the year. That's all they see. Did anyone comment on why they're just seeing this now? Yeah, I, I don't know. And you and I were just talking about this mm. off air, Dr. Ray, about whether maybe it's a, a newish phenomenon. Is it something to do? I, I thought I had a really positive mm. change. I've got a really maybe. positive story to bring. And Ray was like, oh, is it because there's a change in the composition of the atmosphere because there's <laughs> no. more CO2? And I thought, no, 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 no. No, I mean, I don't know. I, I didn't read about yeah. that in the paper, but uh, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm Maybe sure the Earth's question, tilt's though. changed a bit or something. We just haven't known. Or maybe there's a little bit more energy kicking around up there at the moment. I, I, I'm not sure, to be honest with you. Good yeah. question, though. Well, maybe the, the circumstances required for this to happen are so rare that people just haven't observed it. And yeah. This person's just been really lucky. And yeah. So. And I guess um, photos are getting better and better. Cameras are getting better yeah. and better at capturing this mm, stuff. You right. can often only see these things with, uh, with on photos. Yeah. So maybe that's a yeah. feature, too. Let's call it something new and be happy. Yes. Yeah. Dr. Ray, what do you got? Uh, I have uh, an example. There's a, a very slow revolution in science going on about using machine learning mm. uh, to help us do different types of measurements. Now, most people might think of machine learning might manifest itself in image recognition for facial recognition or um, whatever it is. Image processing is probably one of the places it's shown up first. But you're very slowly seeing it start to propagate through a lot of different measurement methods, particularly as technologies come evolve and be able to work quicker. What we're also, I mean, astronomy finds this with the square kilometer array. They can make measure lots of data, but analyzing it. And so this is an example in physical sciences where they, uh, they're looking at crystallography, which we'll get to in a second, and they've actually applied machine learning to the analysis, not the measurement. The measurement can generate data at very fast speeds, but chugging through it is more of a manual task it requires some guessing and knowing beforehand and you can get things wrong so when materials are crystals you could think of a mineral or a metal it's very common in geology trying to figure out which rock is crystalline versus amorphous the same for glass but proteins can crystallize and and everyone of course i'm, I'm sure is familiar with their most common crystal sodium chloride which you put on your chips as salt and actually on a molecular scale those atoms line up into little cubes and that's their unit crystal structure so there's lots of different ways to measure crystals and probably the the gold standard is something called x-ray diffraction uh where it's really great at measuring the crystal amount that's crystal in component or amorphous in any material it's very common concrete and metals and why we care about this is how crystalline something is often controls its strength. And controlling crystallinity in materials is a big deal. Polymers, when they're crystalline, are more opaque than if they're, you see a clear polymer, it's probably amorphous. To give you just a great example of why you want to control crystals, the turbine blades that are made out of titanium or, or different metals in airplane engines, each blade is controlled to be an individual crystal. 
so it doesn't have any imperfections of having multiple crystals in it. And so you really do want to control and measure this. And so what these researchers did in, in San Diego was a particular type of technology called electron backscatter diffraction. And I know that just rolls off the tongue. Um, <laughs> is used in what's called scanning electron microscopes. So these take pictures of materials in a vacuum using a beam of electrons. And why that's a, a nice tool to look at crystallography is instead of having to look at a powder where you mix everything together and get an average, you can get a picture of local crystallinity on different places. And so they use that. They, they can generate an awful lot of data, but analyzing it is quite a challenge. And so they were able to develop a machine learning tool, and they did it on a lot of different minerals and metal, metals and used what was called a convolutional neural network to train it and go, hey, it'll work on all these metals. But then it was a very smart neural network, and it could actually analyze, I think they tested 500,000 samples of things it didn't measure before. And so it's actually quite a trained network. And well, that sounds nice. Oh, we've used machine learning on something else. Uh, what I found in, in this paper and, and is true in machine learning, I think in general, is you think, oh, machine learning, neural networks, that's just something that you just apply and it'll work on anything. And it isn't. And so this study ended up in science because in any neural network, trying to train it to get it to know what are the descriptors or the components that it's looking for are very specific to whatever the measurement is or the field you're working in. And so that's what makes it complicated. And so, for example, if we're trying to make an image filter that knows how to find a power tool to train that network, it's not that you say, train the computer, look for Bosch or Makita or... <laughs> no, it, it actually yep. says, well, this string of numbers in image means it's a power tool. And it, 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 it uses numbers out of the image instead of looking at the image. And it has to train it. And you have to learn, well, this is the string of numbers in a photograph that would be a power tool. And then it, it, you have to give it that type of input. But when you start to talk about molecules or atoms or minerals or whether or not it's crystalline or amorphous, figuring out what descriptors to tell this, this computer program, which is only dealing with strings and numbers, is quite complicated. And, and that's why we're not seeing machine learning just applied to everything all yeah. at once. Yeah. And, and, that's, and that's the challenge in biology for machine learning for proteins or biological molecules, explaining those descriptors and getting that right for whatever the particular physical measurement is a challenge. And it's an exciting time in science because it, it's a very slow revolution because people aren't all jumping on the bandwagon at once. There's a lot of holding on to, oh, I can do it the old-fashioned way. Um, and then if you can actually speed up your discovery, then all these scientists have to figure, what are they going to do with their new time? Mm. What's the new problems they can tackle? Because in the end, this should let us be able to discover more and learn more. But this is just a nice example where in one area in, in, in looking at crystallography, they've seen that that initial jump. Yeah. And this ought to be the, the diving board to jump off for that field. I'm sure it's going to explode over the years. I wanted to mention briefly uh, something that ended this last week, which is a little sad, but a, a huge success story. So NASA's Spitzer Space Tele Telescope uh, came to the end of its um, its period uh, last week. They decided that was that was it enough. And just to give you an idea, um, this is a this is a. a a craft that sees in the infrared so we've talked a lot about um the james webb telescope going up um that's going up next year can it just get delayed again uh a little bit but little uh bit. you know it, it will go up pretty soon and the james webb will see things in the infrared so you'll be able to see uh parts of parts of the universe and and planets around other stars and so forth that we can't see with normal telescopes also the infrared's really hard to see from the ground so it's really hard to use our ground-based telescopes to see in that particular part of the light spectrum but um spitzer has done an amazing and ridiculously uh, long job so 
was first launched in 2003. It was designed to run until 2009, and it just finished last week and the reason it kept going was partly because the james webb was delayed um they kept it going that was part of it but also because there were some pretty funky engineers there at nasa who said you know what we have actually run out of liquid helium so two of the three instruments aren't going to work anymore let's see what we can do without liquid helium and they they refocused the mission based on what was left on the craft and kept it going for basically you know another 11 years which is just phenomenal and it has looked at everything you could imagine, you know, from distant, the, the far distant, the most furthest galaxy ever ever found was a combination piece of work between this and Hubble. And so they did that. It also found uh, and did all the research on something called TRAPPIST-1, which very few people have heard of. But it is the only star system we have so far found that has seven Earth-sized type planets surrounding it. And this is one of great interest because... Often you see these these other stars that have big super gas giants like Jupiter and so forth. There's plenty of those. But to find a star that has so many Earth-like planets in it is really, really interesting. And the TRAPPIST-1 uh, work was all done, or most of it was done, by the Spitzer Space Telescope. So it is it is one of those things, just like the Cassini uh, craft that was around Saturn for so many years, where the data is still going to be examined probably for another 10 years. It's going to go on and on and on. But a, a huge success for NASA, one of the most successful craft ever put up, 16 years worth. Wow. Does that mean there's a gap now in infrared data that will be coming There in? will be a bit of a gap, I suspect, between that and when the, the web goes up. But not a gap for the researchers dealing with all the data they've got they've got so much it's not funny so but it's um yeah one of those huge successes of um of the space program and and while the web is delayed i think it's important to point out i mean i had a a visiting student from the u.s three years ago that had actually done an internship at one of the i think james goddard where they she had a picture next to James Webb, the, yeah. the the telescope, and it's not that it isn't made; it's that they're testing it because it's going yeah. to be located at a Lagrange point. So there's no chance to service it once it's there. So they need to be sure every little bit works. Yeah, yeah, you can't uh, tweak that mirror like they did with Hubble. Yeah. Can I just say too, kudos to the NASA scientists because I feel like they've done this a lot. Oh yeah, they've yeah. made instruments that they say oh yeah you know the the shelf life is you know 10 years or whatever yep. and then it goes for 15 or 20 or whatever they well, do like the, the rover tel- the key the word rover? there is engineer though you yeah. said yeah, nasa yeah. engineers well, that's where engineers are like <laughs> just give me yeah. some gaffer tape i'll make it go for another 10 years and at some stage you know there was more more reports out on the voyage one and two craft this yeah. last week because they're still running yep um, still running and they're starting to shut down because the the issue is the fuel that they use which is nuclear um, has to keep the instruments warm enough for them to operate and as and it has a whole lot of uh, defaults sort of programming settings that say okay if you try and use too much electricity on these instruments we'll stop you doing that to keep the craft alive and this has happened in the last week or two where there was a request for it to do some things and the craft uh, said no 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 I'm shutting those things down on you uh, it's sort of you know outsmarted us in a way they're trying to get more and more out of it but it's over 40 years old yeah, it's wow. incredible still going so anyway we're going to take a break folks we've been uh, chatting for a while actually on the show we don't normally do that we've got a couple of guests waiting in the green room we're going to bring them in in just a moment three triple
And we're back, folks. You are listening to Einstein the Gago on 3 Triple R. In the studio with us now is Lauren Young. She's a PhD candidate in the Center for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University of Technology. Lauren, welcome back. You were one of our 20 in 20 crazy PhD interviews last year. Yes, it's great to be back, Shane. And good job on the mouthful of a center there. Oh, you got the whole center? Yeah, Center for Human Psychopharmacology. I've been, pra- been practicing. Um, you, now, you, you look into aspects of dementia and, and mood disorders and so forth. Yeah. Before we get into some of the risk factors and, and so forth of that, can you just give us some examples of what you mean by that in terms of mood disorders? What are we talking yeah. about? Um, so in our centre, we're not specifically looking at people that uh, may have a clinical diagnosis of mm-hmm. depression or anxiety. Uh, the two major um mood disorders that are affecting Australians and people worldwide. Um, But we're looking at kind of the preclinical. So things, people that might be at risk is um, what we're most interested in. Um, And the same with dementia. So we have people that have mild cognitive impairment or age-associated memory impairment. So these are things that are kind of at the start of the trajectory. Um, People, we're trying to catch them before they um, hit that clinical um, level. And is, is the point there to try and sort of halted is that the yeah. or slow it down is that yeah the- exactly it's really about prevention and i think when we're heading into this aging population um it's actually you know it's inevitable that everyone's going to get older and everyone's gonna uh be at risk um but can how can we prevent that decline and and keep people out of um aged care facilities yeah. for as long as possible yeah and, and how do you know when this is problematic versus when this is just normal scenario. So, for example, mm. I I know <laughs> I am worse at remembering people's names now than when I was in my twenties. Yeah. Um. But I feel as though that's probably just just normal, yeah. as opposed to it being uh, potentially you know an illness or something very problematic. I mean, how do you, how do you distinguish? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, we actually, you know, there's there's uh, I guess more objective ways where you can uh, actually scan someone's brain and you can yep. kind of tell from the inside, but that's not very practical. That we do have a, a number of screening measures where you can tell people that are, uh, I guess, uh, not on that normal trajectory. It is, yeah, it is a slippery slope. Um, but it can get a lot steeper. And so trying to catch and those people and identify the ones that are uh, most mm. at risk. So, yeah, we do have a number of different measures that we can use um, to try and catch those ones and try and early. intervene. Yeah. yeah. So, Lauren, you're looking at these sort of mood disorders, the pre-clinical, yeah. you know, catch them before they get yeah. too serious type space and diet if I'm, if yes. I understand yes. correctly. Yeah. And it feels to me we've had quite a few guests in the last year or so who have linked diet mm-hmm. and gut health to all sorts of different things. How yeah. new is connecting those, these two components together? Yeah, well, when you consider... Um the like the interests of diet and the rest of our health and our physical health um the the link between diet and the brain is is quite young and especially as you mentioned uh gut microbiome that's like a whole other area in itself that i have i can't i I haven't covered in my phd um but it really is in its infancy um yeah there's a whole whole lot that we do not know (laughs) and so you're thinking about not the the gut health, but then the diet in terms of the nutrient delivery yeah. and these kinds of things. So, yeah. which, what what part of that? Are you focusing on? Yeah, so um, for me, I'm I'm looking at nutrient status and the like the nutrients within um, our diets. So um, mainly, 
uh, looking at nutrient intake. So how much, like what are the nutrients that we're actually intaking into our diet? And then how does that translate um, into what we actually can see, read in the blood? Um, and then if that is translating then again into um, psychological outcomes, such as our cognitive function and our mood function. And, and how do we know the levels of requirement there? So I know I, I've had quite a few people I've interviewed over the years with regards to Alzheimer's and iron levels and so forth. Yeah. And, and having an understanding of, okay, how much zinc do I need yeah. before it's detrimental? Do, do we have a feel mm. for that? Because when we talk about nutrient levels now, I always yeah. get a bit nervous. Yeah. And yeah. it's sort of like, so, you know, how low do my nutrient levels in this these particular areas have to drop before it's dangerous? Do we, do we have yeah. a feel for that? Or is it just the sort of usual... Oh, you should have more vitamin C. Yeah, so yeah. You know, yeah. Is, are, there, are there good values? That's actually a, a fantastic question because it's uh, only coming up, I guess, now in this infancy of looking at nutrient for brain health. We're realizing that the levels of nutrients required for optimal brain function is mm-hmm. a lot higher than we what we right. might need for the rest of our body. So um, there's a few researchers out there um, here and overseas are now challenging those ideas of what we consider our recommended daily intakes. So, you, you know, you see that on every packet in a, in a supermarket, on your yogurt, yeah, on your milk, yeah. everything. This is your recommended daily intake. But those actual recommended daily intakes haven't, the like, the research behind them hasn't been looked at for like over yeah. 30 years. So it's so, actually it's actually 25 apples a day will keep the doctor away. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> who yeah. knows? I mean, you, so yeah. we really don't actually, there's, for a lot of these nutrients, um, we we know that we can actually we can supplement or we can take well above the levels, um, and I'm not going to mention every single one, but we are because especially um, particularly for B vitamins, they're water soluble. We're, Taking um, levels that are above the recommended amount is not actually it's actually may be very beneficial for your brain and not harmful. Mm. So so those recommended levels that have been put in for thirty years yeah. they're based on physical health rather yeah. than yeah brain function right? definitely yeah okay. so, so a- they had nothing to do with brain function yeah that's interesting that's, that's fascinating and, w- and so with these studies I know in some of the the work you've been doing mm-hmm. the clinical trials and so forth often these trials are done on uh, relatively well and healthy people yeah. which seems very problematic and but you've been looking at sort of the I, I suppose the very difficult scenario of recruiting people who will admit. Yeah. To having very unhealthy diets. <laughs> yes, so, definitely. So, yeah, I mean, that, that seems like a good shift. Yes. So I, I guess this is the challenge. We know that there is, uh, there's lots of cross-sectional evidence and observational evidence. And we see if someone has a better quality diet and they're taking, they're intaking a lot of really good nutrients, then they have better psychological health, that right. their mood's better, they're performing better cognitively. But when we translate this into clinical trial research and we supplement someone with a vitamin, we're not seeing the same kind of results. And so this has been, um, this was the big challenge at the start of my PhD. Why is this happening? Where's this disconnect? And so uh, we... We, we hypothesized and we've, it's been proposed by a lot of researchers that participant selection is the reason for this. Mm. Um, and so what we have typically seen in clinical trial research, people that volunteer, um, they they obviously have a, an, an, an interest in the research to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. It's like all the listeners of this show. You There's know. such a bias. There. Yeah. yeah, such yeah. a bias. Yeah. yeah, a massive bias. And so if someone's already interested in the research and they're coming into a trial knowing that they could get placebo, um, so no potential benefit, they're obviously doing it for, for – they're motivated. They want to mm. do it. And they might already have a pretty good diet. And so um, – 
so what I, we tried to do in this in the study that I conducted for my PhD is um, try and get a broader range of participants. So people that might have that suboptimal diet um, and, or and then compare that to people that also had an optimal diet. Right. Yeah. And so you're really then testing, you know, if, if we're going to take what is probably the norm in many countries like Australia, yeah. the US and so forth, suboptimal diets and try and deal with dementia decline, et cetera, for those people, you yeah. have to determine whether supplements work for that group. Exactly. Not, not the super... I'm eating kale every day group. Yeah. The, the, the group that, you know, every now and then has some uh, burgers that they probably shouldn't have. But yeah. but that that's the element, isn't it, of, of determining does this work for people who have otherwise poor diets? Yeah, 100%. And I think that there's, I guess, a... <sighs> A common like thing that people say is if you've got a really good diet, you don't need to supplement. There's mm, no added yeah, benefit. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I've worked in a pharmacy for a long time. That was the conception of customers. I've worked in research for a long time. That's kind of what people, like, think. But... I guess we can now test this hypothesis. Is there is yeah. there a benefit in people that already have a good diet? Is there a better benefit in people that have a poorer diet? And I have to say, on, on this, you, you, you are fighting a war here that is extraordinarily difficult because yeah. – there is a war between scientists for many years saying supplements are bullshit mm-hmm. across the across the yep. board, and people like Gwyneth Paltrow having new Netflix series that say <laughs> get on board with this stuff. Yeah. And and somewhere in between is is your sort of work yeah. where you're saying, well, actually, hang on, there may be a very valuable, uh, you know role played yeah. by some of these supplements for brain health yeah. forget forget the overall health thing but brain health and you have to listen to this new message this yeah. is this is going to be hard it, it is challenging but if we consider 30 percent of australian adults are already taking at least one supplement yeah, a wow. day so people are doing it is yeah. it working that that's the real that's the real thing and and yeah i guess that's also the the thing most but then in conjunction with that, most Australians aren't eating a healthy diet. Yeah. It's it's about 10% of Australian adults are actually eating um, the recommended vegetables. God, I, f- I feel as I'm not eating a healthy diet. Now I find out I'm not <laughs> taking supplements because I thought that was good. <laughs> you really wrecked my Sunday. Uh. Laura, the thing that I – one last question if we have time, Dr. Chen. Yeah. The thing that as someone who doesn't work with humans for yeah. their science, I'm always perplexed as to how you can separate these things out. So you mm. say that people generally volunteer and they're the people who are interested. They're the people who yeah. generally eat healthily. They are interested in the scientific outcome. So maybe their socioeconomic status is different or their brains, yeah. their brain is maybe behaves in a different way to people who don't give a shit about science. Yeah. In a, Like how can you separate that out and say it's because of this? Yeah. And we, we actually really don't know. There's a, a, we're hypothesizing um, why this has happened. And it was an, a great exercise. I don't have the results of the trial yet. But to try and get half of our participants that had a poor diet, we had to call and call and call. My colleague Sarah Gauchi and I called and called and called um, 500 people. And 75% of those had an optimal diet. Oh boy. Now, whether that is, you know, there's also just um, you know, people want to it people yeah. want to sound like they have a great diet. Yeah. Are they lying to you? Motivation. And then also people might have a poor diet, but then also might have a clinical diagnosis of depression. Mm. And so 
it, that is it the fact of diet has already made them ineligible for this type of research. Yeah. So there's many different challenges when you're trying to recruit people that are the most at risk. But if we can do it and we have been able to do it for this study, um, it's very exciting to be able to see whether it, it may be yeah. um, most well, beneficial. Lauren, great work. I know it's your PhD work, but it sounds like one of the more robust approaches to this sort of work that I've heard on the show. Often we hear ones where you, you can find the cracks pretty easily in terms of the bias. It sounds like you guys are really going after that and trying to sort that out. Thanks so much for coming back. And, Thank you um, so much for having it. me. Lauren Young, soon-to-be doctor, uh, <laughs> is a PhD candidate in the Centre for Human Psychopharmacology at Swinburne University. We're going to take a break, folks, and we'll be back in just a moment with our second guest for today. Three. Uh, welcome back, folks. You're listening to Einstein and Go Go. It's a science show. It's our first one back for 2020. I did want to quickly mention that we got a message from Cliff Davis in Antarctica saying it's hot down there. See, that's amazing. Yeah, People thanks, Cliff. all around the world. Yeah, that's, that's disturbing. He sent me the Davis Weather Station um, sort of. So, what is it? Grab. What's the temperature? The temperature is, gee, see, now I kind of want to uh, air temp zero degrees. Well, there you go. That is actually warm. That's warm. With wind chill, it's minus 11.3. Yeah, still zero. uh, Yeah, not good. Anyway, uh, thanks, Cliff. Love to get that message. Thanks for listening to the show. In the studio with us now is Dr. Laura Bird, who was one of our PhD 20 and 20 uh, candidates last year when she was in the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. She is now working at the Flory Institute, has a new job. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. Good to be back. When did you finish? Um, so I finished, the PhD was past, uh, I think, middle of last year, but I right. graduated in December. So I'm newly a doctor. Newly a doctor. Well, congratulations. That's <laughs> a you. huge accolade. Well done. Um, now, you're working, uh, you've been working in an area which just I find absolutely fascinating. And there's this connection between rehabilitation after brain injury and the value of having learnt music when you're a child. Yeah. Uh, it, yep. I mean, Talk us through this because this seems, I mean, we hear a lot about brain plasticity and music, but what, what's going on there when we learn music as a child or when we're younger? Yeah, so yeah, music is this amazing thing. It's the studies that have tried to compare it to um, drama and art and sports, and they all have their benefits as mm. well, but there's nothing sort of quite like music. It involves the whole brain, um, so both sides of the brain, um, basically all the different networks in the brain, the um, uh, sort of memory and cognitive, cognitive sort of networks, um, the limbic emotional kind of parts of the brain, obviously the motor parts of the brain for playing an instrument mm. or um, to control vocal cords for singing. Um, and it's got attention and processing, attention and uh, processing speed kind of uh, involvement. And then the auditory aspect as well, right. the visual aspect, reading music. So it involves the entire brain basically to be able to pick up and play an instrument. Right. Let alone if you're playing in a band or an orchestra and you've then got to actually follow what everyone else is doing as well yeah. make sure that you're in time with with them so as a sort of social aspect is it is it instrument dependent like if i'm there on the cymbals how am i going <laughs> like as opposed to the glockenspiel you know what i mean like is it do we see differences between you know someone who's a expert pianist and someone who is on something 
Not not against people on the tambourine, but you know, uh, something a little the triangle. The triangle. So, so typically, <laughs> percussionists play more than one instrument. You know, yeah. <laughs> just, but you, you know the point I'm making, which yeah. is there is uh, there are differences in the different sorts of yeah. um, music that we. I'm play. not sure about piano compared to triangle, but certainly there are. Uh, there's definitely motor differences. Yeah. So if you're playing piano, um, both of the hand representations in the brain will be larger versus if you're playing the violin, um, they see larger rep- representation of the the pinky finger that does a lot of work um, the violin that is not really used you know as much in normal people who don't use it for yeah, that yeah. purpose so there's motor um, you only use yeah. it when I'm making a deal <laughs> yeah well and, 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 and everyone else in the studio is suddenly like flexing their hands yeah. and their pinkies see how flexible they are so, so what's happening in terms of so when there's a brain injury you said before like music makes us use our whole brain mm. how does our recovery from a brain injury sort of receive help I suppose from from that process mm. well so what I've looked at specifically is people with epilepsy mm-hmm. um, and looked at the effect that prior music training has on their cognitive abilities later down the track yep. um, and uh, we did find that musicians with epilepsy tended to perform better on some of the cognitive tasks we gave them particularly ones that involved verbal cognitive abilities okay. so involving words remembering words um, generating words things like that um, in epilepsy we think it happens because of the way that epilepsy develops it is also a disorder of brain networks um can in a lot of people develop in childhood and um you know it continues to have effects as they have ongoing Mm. seizures um so it's sort of disrupting those networks in the brain but if they're also playing an instrument at the same time it's possible that the instrumental training is also strengthening parts of the the brain and perhaps creating alternate pathways so that the functions that um, are normally um, governed by the brain areas that are affected by the seizures may have alternate pathways to be able to so, so that would be my question there is mm. uh, uh, epileptics or the storms of electroactivity which you know you see are they localized in the brain as opposed to the whole brain uh, there's very, very uh, a lot of different forms of epilepsy. So the form of epilepsy that I looked at was focal epilepsy mm-hmm. where the seizures do tend to be localized to one particular area. They can spread as well but they uh, come from the same area every time okay. um, versus generalized epilepsy um, where seizures tend to um, very rapidly evolved to include the the whole brain so they have a, a larger sort of effect over the whole brain and so there's this protective effect it seems from having learned an instrument mm. how, how long do you have to have, have done that i mean i think most of yeah, us have learned mary had a little question. lamb on the piano at some <laughs> stage but but you know that that issue of of longevity do mm. you, you know what's required for that protective effect? yeah this is something i want to look a lot further into to really clarify this um, the way that i classified my musicians versus non-musicians mm. in my um, study was based on what had mainly been done in the literature which, which was around about three years a cut okay. off of about three years of training um, it doesn't mean that everybody in the group of three years and above necessarily show those effects but as a group they did um, that group had about on average i think it was about six to nine years of training um, there's also some new research that's coming out some guidelines saying that six years is actually a much better mm, cut off so that's possibly the kind yeah. of to go on. And Laura, is there an age range that's perfect there? I mean, if I start picking up the <laughs> piano now and I practice for six years, is that 
you know, a bit too late? Do you really need to start when your brain is still developing? There's a lot of benefits starting earlier. I think there'd still be benefits of um, uh, people in their adulthood who who start. And certainly for older adults, there's some research that I've read um, indicating that music training can help uh, with some of the attention and processing speed um, issues Mm. that older adults tend to develop. But when you're younger, um, so that critical period usually is about um, seven years of age um, is what they say for second language development um, and for musical training as well the brain is more plastic more malleable at that age so tend to show better and and fast forwarding just quickly because we're only got a couple of minutes to go what about post brain injury Uh, Mm. you know if i if i have a brain injury and i start learning a a musical instrument now does that does that help with my recovery yes this is also an area i'm very interested Mm. in going into um in the next uh coming years um there's research in stroke for example melodic intonation therapy has been around for a a long time um, decades um in rehabilitating people with stroke who have language difficulties and that's using um melodies so singing phrases um as opposed to speaking them because it then recruits some of the music areas of the brain that can be used to overcome the language deficits. Um, So for that purpose, yes, for a more general cognitive cognitive purpose, purpose, so to um, rehabilitate memory or, yeah, just general cognitive skills, um, unsure at the moment, and it might depend on the type of brain injury Mm. as well, um, whether it's stroke or whether it's dementia or whether it's epilepsy. um, I think there's still a bit of work to go. Yeah, yeah. Look, it's it's super interesting. Is is there a... (laughs) Is there an analogue that we could use uh, for people who have hearing loss or who, is that a factor? Like mm. if, I, if, I can't, if I can't do that now because of other factors, is there something else? Is there mathematics or something else that, that can achieve similar things? Right, that's an interesting question. Um, I suppose there's still some parts of playing an instrument I suppose that you could still do uh, mm. without the auditory mm. aspect yeah. so you can you know follow a, a visual sequence and yep. um, be tapping along maybe yeah a more percussive sort of um, drum or some yeah. instrument like that and you could do that in a, a social um, setting as well where you're mm. tapping in time with a rhythm to somebody else and maybe it gives you some feedback, yeah. visual feedback yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. so there's potential um, other ways yeah, for to innovating the whole brain. instruments yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. And maybe yeah it wouldn't have the auditory component yeah but, um, oh, Oh, look, it's yeah. fascinating. I think these things are the, the power of music is, you know, is just extraordinary yeah. in many regards yeah. for recovery and from a variety of things. Mm. So it's great that you're looking into this specifically for these problems, especially around epilepsy, where it's it's so debilitating for people mm. yeah. to just go go by their day to day lives in some cases. Yeah, you know, they can't absolutely. drive cars, you can't do all sorts yeah. of things depending on how badly you're affected. Yeah. So Laura, thanks so much for coming back and chatting Thank to you. us more about this and uh, good luck with your new job there at the, the Flory. I'm Thank sure you. it'll go very well and congratulations again on your PhD. Thanks. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Dr. Laura Bird is from the Flory Institute, formerly from the School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne. Well, one show done. It goes fast, doesn't it, you three? Absolutely. It does. <laughs> We're almost out. Uh, folks, uh, thanks so much for listening to Einstein and Gogo today. Dr. Ailey, great to see you. Are really you, good to see you. Are you, you back too. once a month? I am. I, I am need, back once a month. I need my climatologist yes. in the studio. <laughs> We're uh, going to do it. Lyndon and I are going to do a tag team. Yeah, no, that'd be great. It'd be great if you guys can. Uh, we, we need our climatologist in the studio at the moment more than ever. Uh, Dr. Ray, good to see you. Good to see you. And Dr. Lyndon, good Always to see you. Always good too. to see you, Dr. Shane. Oh, I am.
<laughs> oh god I'm going to have to do all this for a while I suspect folks Dr Linden is uh, very good at this anyway, proud gonna... I'm proud is what I proud. am what Lord Dr Shane oh that's god uh, on that note we're going to hand over to the team from Eat It uh, they are cooking up a storm over there in Studio 2 and uh, I suspect they're very happy to be back as well thanks so much for listening remember science is everywhere and uh, we'll chat to you again next week Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.